summer children, you've reached Peep This Noise, the Lost Podcast. I am your host, Logan Johnson, and coming to me across the airwaves, hopefully for the very last time, are the co-hosts. Do you guys want to introduce yourselves? Hi, I'm Greg Marchant. And I'm Nathaniel Johnson, apparently here to kill this podcast, because like Logan said, this is the last time. This is it. We're done. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm hoping he just meant we're going to not have to quarantine uh quarantine record oh yeah that makes i hope i hope that's yeah i have a a fleeting hope we have a a bunch of sound equipment coming in tomorrow that should uh drastically help us with that so we will see um no spoilers i guess if the next episode is just as terrible as all these other ones then you know quit the podcast and maybe we will too who knows um (laughs) that's not true nathaniel and i were joking before we're contractually obligated to podcast until the star death of the universe so we're stuck and you're stuck with us uh but this week we're going to be talking about atlantis lost empire a disney movie from the hot year of 2001 when i was a wee lad of five years old nathaniel go ahead and hit us with an introduction this was your pick right yeah, so first and foremost, you can of course access this film on Disney Plus along with basically everything Disney's ever made or bought, uh, which includes a lot of weird titles uh, that you wouldn't expect, like The Princess Bride, great film if you haven't seen it. Um, but Atlantis is actually like Disney. Like Disney made this, and Robin Williams, I think, described Disney as animators the best when he said that Disney is like the Rolls Royce of animation. If you get the chance to work with Disney on an animated project, you're making something really special. Um, so say whatever else you will about Disney as a corporation when it comes to their animated films. They're really cool and they're really special. But this one's a bit weird um, as far as Disney films go. I mean, the typical Disney film, we've already covered one of the typical Disney films in a way uh, when we covered Frozen 2 on this sh- uh, show. And by that, I mean... <laughs> Excuse what? me? It, we no, just refer Frozen. to Frozen 2 as a typical Disney film. I will stand yeah. my Queen Elsa on this podcast. And this, that's fine. If this podcast turns into Elsa Defense Force, I won't even be <laughs> mad. <laughs> now, that's not to say Frozen 2 is a bad film. I think we all agreed when we went over that that we like Frozen 2. But it is a Disney princess film in a lot of ways. Um, meaning that it's, uh, in a lot of ways, a coming-of-age story about a princess. And that princess falls in love. Um, as she learns to discover who she is and break out of her own shell. And I have, I'm, of course, talking about Anna in this instance. Um, but that's kind of Disney's thing. They tell stories about princesses having a coming-of-age story. Um, Atlantis is not that. It's written by the uh, very popular and famous uh, writer-slash-director Joss Whedon, who is famous for things like Firefly and The Avengers. Um And he wrote the script for this, and the film has an all-star cast behind it, um, including Michael J. Fox as Milo Thatch. And it follows this... Doesn't it? Um, And it follows uh, Milo Thatch, who is an archaeologist, which is like... And when I say archaeologist, we're not talking Indiana Jones. We're talking, like, dude who, like, stays all day living in a museum. I think he's actually a cryptographer. He's a linguist. Linguist, that's what he is. So he's not even as cool as and an he's archaeologist. Not a cartographer, it's cartographer. That's it. He's that's a it. linguist and a map maker. So he, he studies languages, dead languages, and he makes maps of ancient lands. <laughs> yeah, he's he's definitely not an archaeologist. His uh, his um grandfather, who he looks up to, is that's most right. definitely an uh, an antiquarian, like a mm. a collector who goes and like robs tombs and ruins and stuff like that. Wait, this movie's about tomb robbers. Tomb well, raiders, except for the actually. people, except for the people are, who they rob are living. Oh, that's right. In, yeah. They're living in this film, but they explicitly mentioned um, the explosives guy whose name escapes me. Um, he explicitly mentions that they've robbed graves before and that nobody got yes, hurt. Yes, he does. <laughs> well, maybe somebody got hurt, but not anyone we knew. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, which is one of the things we're definitely going to talk about in this film is that whole concept. Um, but the pitch of the rest of the film is that Milo is a person who is able to help them find the lost city of Atlantis. They go there with a team of experts. Uh, spoilers for the rest of the film, by the way. Uh, this almost 20-year-old film that you can go watch on Disney+, Plus, 
And if you need to, pause the podcast, go do it. Um, they go to find the lost city of Atlantis. Uh, Atlantis, which they're expecting to be ruins, it's not ruins, it's populated and dying, and they're basically become two factions in the uh, group of grave, grave robbers, those who want to save the civilization and those who want to plunder it all and leave the Atlanteans to die. Um, and the third, the final act of the film is them having a big explosive conflict over that, and it's really fun. <laughs> It was a pretty fun movie. Um, I I do have one thing that I want to like just drop in here that's a little bit risky, but I, I think that this movie is a is Disney ripping off another movie. Oh, okay. Because Titan AE came out in two thousand, <laughs> has the same plot and basically the same cast. It has a similar cast. Matt Damon wasn't in this but one, though. Titan well, not no, about... not like the voice cast, but like the, the characters that it has. Oh, sure. Oh, like the yeah, yeah, yeah. A yeah, bunch yeah. of... Uh, it's a got a similar ensemble. Of, a yeah. motley crew of mercenaries. But it's not about finding a lost civilization, but it is about finding that big... But it is about finding the big thing that's going to make a difference in the world, and then when they get to it, they find out that some of the adventurers' motives are not very pure at all, and then they have a showdown with the leader of the the group. (laughs) Now that you've gotten me on this tangent, I have to talk about who made that movie. Uh, Don Bluth. Don Bluth. And Gary... Don Bluth's the really important... Gary Goldman, though. Gary Goldman? Yeah, directed by Don Bluth and Gary Goldman. Um, Not to be confused with Gary Oldman. Correct. Um, Don Bluth used to work for Disney. And he gave one of the reasons he split being that Disney doesn't care about um, art. They only care about money. And he cited, uh, he came to work at Disney after Fantasia was produced. And he was asking around, there's this effect with water. I don't know what effect he's referring to, um, but presumably like a splash effect that they did in the painting of Fantasia, um, where the water just looks really realistic. And he said, okay, but how did we do that? Like, what was the technique? And nobody at the studio had any clue how it was done. And that was part of the reason he split with Disney and went off to make films like All Dogs Go to Heaven, Titan AE, mm-hmm. um, and others. Um, the Secret of Nim. And, mm-hmm. yeah, Secret of Nim. Lots of great films, yeah. um, which I'm sure at some point we would love to cover. Um, but what's important with this is when people split from Disney things usually are pretty sour if they make their own studio of any kind or make their own works and projects, and they will fight with Disney. So Jeffrey Katzenberg is another person who left and formed DreamWorks and made the film Ants at the same time that uh, A Bug's Life was coming out. Um, And Shrek has been pointed out to have the uh, villain Lord Farquaad looks like Michael Eisner, who was running Disney at the time. Um... And then, of course, you know, Disney just went and did the same thing in The Incredibles. Uh, the insurance salesman dude, who's really short that Mr. Incredible punches through, like, 20 walls, looks like Jeffrey Katzenberg. So, like, it's fine. This is just, like, a thing in the animation industry, I guess. <laughs> um, but my point is, it's not surprising that there was another film that came out in the same time with somebody who was a former disgruntled Disney employee. Um, that was relatively similar. Yeah, I just, I think it's important to note that it came out in the previous year. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, I, I just, I was reminded, I was reminded when I watched this of Titan AE. That's fair. And so I had to look it up and find out. And that was, that was what I discovered. Yeah. No, and Titan AE is a great film. Um. Starring uh, starring the voice talents of Matt Damon and Drew Barrymore. Yeah, and they're fantastic together. They play off each other really well. Yep. Um, but that said, let's talk about Atlantis, a show which I really adore and think is also really problematic. Um, so my first question uh, goes as follows. In the prologue, we see two at least two Atlanteans who survived the collapse of Atlantis, which is eight thousand years prior Mm -hmm. um and they're still alive when milo thatch and crew come to them and the show wants us to believe that during that time the atlanteans have lost the knowledge of their written language 
and they have lost access to many of their technological wonders as a result of that loss of language. Um, and that is the state they find themselves in until Milo Thatch, the 20-something-year-old white academic, comes in and saves them from the bad white people. Um, so my question is, how do you think this choice to have, uh, I believe the term is a white savior, um, when, it, when a white person goes into a different culture and saves them in a story, how do you think this choice to have a white savior impacted the story both positively and negatively? I mean, from my from my side, I think the best you could say is it had some negative impacts and some neutral impacts. Okay. Yeah, I don't know if good impact is like necessarily I would make a case for this on this one. <laughs> yeah. Um. So the I found the idea that they had just completely forgotten their written language and how to use, how to basically, basically what they had forgotten as far as the movie is concerned is their written language, and they had forgotten how to read and how to drive a car. Basically. Nope. How to how to start a car. But how to start, start a car. They can drive perfectly. It's <laughs> they the can fly those fish things fine. And well, it's worth mentioning, the adventurers can fly those things perfectly too. Yeah. Well, not only that, something that's really interesting for me to now immediately hop on a rant about that whole thing is that this is not a problem of her not being able to read. Despite the fact that they say she can't read, right? They make that really clear. That's not the actual problem when she goes to start the car because he's like, okay, did you put the crystal in? And she's like, yes. And he's like, did you put your hand on the pad? She's like, yes. And he's like, did you turn the crystal? And she's like, yes. And he's like, with your hand on the pad? And she was like, no. So that actually isn't she can't read. It's just she's super dumb, which is worse, I think. Um, yes. <laughs> because, yeah, I, it's interesting. I To kind of go with what Greg was saying, I don't know that I'd buy this whole they forgot how to read and also drive or start cars thing. Um, it's kind of weird, right? <laughs> like, yeah. Two very well, niche parts of your culture to forget. And it's weird because there are people who survived the collapse of Atlantis who are still alive and have forgotten these things. Now, like, Kida, the main Atlantean that we interact with, was a literal child when the collapse happened. So, fine. But, like, everyone? Come on. That's weird. Yeah, the, the, idea, that, the idea that nobody there could teach her is kind of odd. <laughs> Visually, when they're showing Atlantis being kind of preserved from the from the cataclysm, they show that like the central third of the city mm -hmm. was was completely saved from the catastrophe, and everybody there survived, which included like their main their main palace and all of their all of their like probably government seeming buildings and stuff like that. And you're telling me no one there. Uh, no one there who survived ever decided to teach the princess how to read, and the um, and her uh, her father went blind, and somehow that stops her from or stops him from teaching her how to how to do any of these things. You know, anything. you know, I could actually see two things. Let's let's pretend for a second that everybody who does know how to read, except for him, because of course he would read, does die. So he's the only one who can read. If he does go blind, yeah, he can't teach her how to read. I mean, that's obviously still a bad argument in a lot of ways, because you can still carve out shapes and feel them, but, like, that puts a damper on it. And then if you further put that he has sins over the technological use he had, he's not going to pass that on to his daughter. Yeah, I, mean, I don't maybe. I don't know. I, it's I'm giving a charitable read, guys. I'm giving a real charitable okay. read here. Can... But let let's say let's say this. Can you write with your eyes closed? Not well, but yes. And have you ever played that game where like have you ever played that game where like either you close your eyes and someone like traces letters on your hand or on or like on the back of your shoulder or something like yeah. that and you try and figure out what they're saying or something like that? Yeah. Obviously there were ways around this, especially in Be eight thousand. Better question. Time. Have you ever lived eight hundred years and just forgotten to teach your daughter to read? <laughs> Has that ever happened to you? <laughs> I mean, you know, that's though, relatable, right? Like, it, it's possible that if no, you it's no enough, stop. White people get you enough. You would charity. have forgotten stop. how to read. <laughs> it's not possible. That's a possibility. It isn't possible. 
It's the other thing is maybe the crystal wiped everyone's memory of how to read. Oh, okay. Men in black. Sure. Sure. No. I mean, there's a big flash of light. And big flash of light. He does go blind from looking at it, so like it's not totally impossible. And the crystal does a whole bunch of other stuff, like heal literal wounds through proxy crystals. How many like, measures have you burned? Basically saying this might not be colonialist garbage, which it <laughs> is. Like, okay, the early like pro-imperialist argument was that culturally and morally, white people are superior. That was like the original argument. And hey, some people still argue that, right? Yes. And so th- that's the case this movie is making, right? This, this movie is making the case that um, morally... The white folks, or or not necessarily white, right? There there are people of color in that camp too, right? But the yes. colonialists will ultimately they'll make the right choice because most colonialists deep down are good guys, right? That's the case that this makes, whether it means to or not, is that right. yeah, it's just, it's just it was a just a few couple. Were the right, problem. it's just a few bad apples. Correct. And yeah. so yeah, and we one can. Of, one of those bad apples ha- explicitly has a German name. Interesting. <laughs> huh. Her name her name is her name is Helga something and it's a German it's a German name, so that's that's definitely a loaded uh, a loaded is it issue. Either way, it's Helga. Yeah, it, it was Helga and that's kind of German sounding and she's also blonde and military. There's yeah. She's super cool though in that movie, isn't she though? Like she is super cool. Right? Yeah, I forgot that. Like, I I have watched this movie more than just this time, and I forgot that she died. So anyway, yeah. Can Can we talk for a second about one one thing where I will give this movie like just incredible points on? Um, it's two thousand one, right? But this yeah, is a movie. Representation, or yeah, this is a movie yeah. where not not only is the cast diverse, right, but Sweet is played by a guy of African descent. The demolition guy is played by a guy of Italian of de- Italian descent. The Latinx girl is played by a daughter of Argentine immigrants. Yeah. The the main the lead lady Kita is played by somebody of native descent. Right. Like this is a a cast not just again a cast of characters that is ethnically diverse, but also like they didn't just have white people play those people, which for two thousand one is like. Not necessarily groundbreaking, but it's still impressive, right? That's yeah. that's becoming more and more uh, well common. But for an animated film, it's not necessarily what you'd expect. It's also with that. Let's take a bit of like a feminist look at this too. Um, the Latinx character who I can't remember her name offhand, which bugs me. Um, but she's giving her what is it's it? Audrey. It's Audrey. Audrey. She's giving her backstory to Milo, um, and she's like, yeah. My dad wanted two sons, one to like get the heavyweight title ship title and one to run his mechanic shop. When she's explaining why she's a mechanic and she's like and he's like, Oh, and where's your sister? And she's like, Oh, she's going twenty one and zero with a shot for the title next month, right? Like Right. And Joss Whedon has said before, he so he gets asked a question all the time in interviews about his scripts. And the question is essentially, why do you put strong female characters into your scripts? And his response is, Because people like you keep asking me that question. Um, which is what he's done here, right? Like, there are these strong female characters. Um, some are likable and some are not likable, but they're scattered throughout the script. Um, now, they're not the main characters, but they are there, and this is in 2001. Right. I want to emphasize again, this is also a movie where the main female lady has to be explained to by a man how to start a car. So There is like, that. <laughs> like, there is not only that. that. Not only that, before we start getting too charitable again... This is also a thing where Audrey, the mechanic, like prestigious mechanic, can't figure out how to fix a boiler. But fortunately, Milo's there, and boy, he may be a cartographer, but does this guy know boilers, <laughs> right? So it's like before we get ahead of ourselves, let's also keep our yes. critical eyes open, right? Absolutely. So I think we've I think we've arrived at the answer is that there were there wasn't really a positive impact of of that, and there were a lot of negative impacts of here um, here of the white savior. Yeah. Of the white as always <laughs> i i had a lot of so i i do enjoy this movie too but yeah, i had fun. i had a lot of problems with this as someone who got their who got their degree in anthropology 
Sure. And had to see all of the things that was going that were that were going on here, and like the fact that Milo looks up to a character who stands for everything that anthropology really isn't. Um, yeah. And this whole this whole uh, the the whole plot of the story involves so many elements of not respecting other people's not respecting other people's cultures. And also, um, and also, like, basically just trying to steal what we think is the cool thing about their culture. <laughs> there, there was a lot of stuff that I just that I just really had a problem with it. Looking at it critically, like, and it it kind of it kind of ruined the movie for me a little bit on on this yeah. watch through as I as I really stopped to pay attention to it. Well, it's also interesting how many, like, fascinating and essentially priceless things they discover in their search for Atlantis that they literally just blow up. Yeah, I mean, it's good foreshadowing for who these people actually are and how Milo should have realized it, but yeah, yeah um, it's, it's really frustrating to see. Well, so, this is one I like to think about in actual history, um... We, it's either Mayan or Aztec, and I'm pretty sure it's Mayan. We don't actually know currently how to read the ancient Mayan script, which is basically a bunch of pictographs. Um, but it is a script um, with like 800 characters that convey more of ideas rather than uh, symbols and characters. Um, so they're pictures that mean something. But it's a very complex and robust language. And there's a staircase that has a bunch of these um, pictographs that go from top to bottom and are supposed to be this cohesive idea. And when the Spanish conquistadors came, they took down the pictographs, looked at them, said, that's neat, and then just put them back up on the staircase in whatever order they could get it to fit. And so the little bit we do know about the language now, it's total gibberish on that staircase. If only we had somebody who specialized in gibberish. <laughs> yeah, Another very was... problematic thing about this film. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I hear there's an opening here for an expert in gibberish. Oh, man. Uh, oh, it hurt me. It was like a baseball bat to the psyche. It, okay, so another, another movie that I like is the original Stargate movie. Okay. Which has some similar things, like guy shows up on planet and knows how to read their language so that uh, knows how to read their language so that he can start to communicate with the people living there and figure out how to get everybody home right um, and there's a there's a similar relationship between the the white uh, the white male academic lead and a um, and a woman from the planet mm-hmm. Um and it's like they kind of like got rid of everything good about uh, everything good about their little storyline from Stargate and left all of the super problematic and frustrating stuff in there and then um and then just like put it in this movie. <laughs> yeah. Well I'm not saying that I'm not saying that they explicitly like ripped off Stargate or something. No, but like Stargate's a really good comparison. Me, but yeah. Stargate's they, probably a better comparison, I would say though. Um, because it is so much more similar, um, where it is, they go and discover an entire civilization of other humans that exists, and there's the one academic who can communicate, and, you know, all of that. But Stargate has the advantage of giving, like, a really strong reason for why the people on the other end of the Stargate... Uh, Stargate, by the way, is a show where they find a portal, basically, that takes them to another planet, and spoilers for that movie, I guess, too, while we're at it, um... On this other planet, right. it's essentially ancient Egypt, as if nothing had ever changed. And the reason for that is there's a super powerful alien who has enslaved everyone on that planet and kept them in a state of slavery for thousands of years. So at least and that like, alien's name was capitalism. That alien's Wait, name was Ra, <laughs> um, as in the sun god. Um, so at least that movie goes, hey, these people aren't dumb because they're different. They're dumb because they've been enslaved by an incredibly powerful being. Yeah. 
Um, well, and they're not, not even not dumb. even dumb, but they they don't know their they don't know their language because he's specifically kept it from them. Right. Yeah, dumb was a bad choice there, but they are they lack certain tools that the academic character lacks because the academic character has had the freedom to study and they haven't. So that actually brings me to my next question: um, How would you change this movie um, <laughs> to make it better and still? You know, keep it more or less recognizable. Uh, can I jump Have the ship get torn up by the Leviathan. <laughs> <laughs> All that would the definitely make crushed. it more believable. That would definitely make it more believable. I totally agree. <laughs> then we would never have to deal with the whole question of how did they live eight hundred years? Eh, it doesn't matter. I mean, <laughs> eight thousand. Eight thousand eight hundred. Oh, eight thousand eight hundred. Yes, that's eight thousand eight hundred. Yes, that's it is. a lot worse. Um, the, uh, okay, this is what I would do. I would shift the, I would, uh, shift, I I would rewrite Milo to just be a better guy. Okay. But then I would shift the focal character, I would shift the focal character to being somebody else in the group. Oh, interesting. Either one of the bad guys, or... Uh, either one of the bad guys, or maybe, uh, or maybe sweet. Um, like have have like a villain protagonist here, and then and then let the let uh, let the audience just see everybody react to the twist without like without like explicitly letting the audience know that this was a bad guy, but just hmm. building building up what the what this person's motives are and then having the betrayal of the actual stated purpose come come out of that or so like commander Wark is your main character then in this react yeah. or or switch it to or switch it to sweet who can spend the entire movie being like mildly uncomfortable and then more and more conflicted as he's realizing that this isn't really because they explicitly say in the movie that Sweet needs to get rid of. Uh, Commander Rourke says, "Sweet, you need to get rid of that uh, bleeding heart of yours. It doesn't fit a mercenary." In the third act of the movie, Rourke has five, some great lines. He says that by the way. five minutes after saying we're not mercenaries, we're adventure capitalists. Which somebody write that down because that is what colonialism is—is is adventure capitalism. <laughs> like, so good, incredible line. Um, Rourke has know. some great lines. My only hold back there is that I don't know what the film is. I don't know that the film knows what the film is doing with that line. <laughs> right? That's fair. Like, I know what the film is doing with that line. I just don't know that the film knows. Um, yeah. I think it's like played off as like a, I prefer this better term. And it's like, actually, that term is worse, sir. <laughs> like, I'd freaking trust some mercenaries over some adventure. Heck, I'd trust some mercenaries over some regular capitalists any day. <laughs> like, freaking, That's give good. me them. Um, but anyway, I, I digress and I totally derailed. Sorry. <laughs> no, and that, that's just what, those are just the two options that I can think of. Either either make it, either make the main character sweet, who can gradually, who you can gradually show is feeling more and more conflicted, and you can show Milo as kind of an idiot, but maybe rewrite him as a, rewrite him as a less pretentious dumb character mm-hmm. like maybe maybe make him the oblivious academic rather than the self-righteous uh, rather than the self-righteous needs to explain everything to everybody academic yes can, that, that can we sense. talk about the other thing too that he's like I love the culture of Atlantis so much. Uh, Kitakagish, I can't pronounce your name. Do you have a nickname? And it's like, dude, like, come on. And you're a linguist. Yeah, the pretension is off the wall. He's like, and I feel like that's a decision where they're like, this movie's for kids. They're not going to be able to pronounce Kitagagish. And I don't know. Again, this is a thing where the movie does a thing, and I don't think the movie knows what it's doing. (laughs) Right? Well, and it's wild, right? Because, like, when I was a kid, right? Like, I was making up names that were longer than that and, like, keeping them consistent. I'm not going to say what my gamer tag is, but it's been that way since I was 10. So I would like to point out that Zakagarath is the same length as Kitagagish. So. Thank you. <laughs> same um, exact number of characters. 
Thank you. So um, <laughs> that was for sure the longest one we came up with. Yeah, but the, the point is there, right? Like, and we were making those up as kids, right? Like, kids could learn these names. And also, I don't even remember using her name as a kid. I was like, you know, the Atlantean girl. <laughs> like, oh boy. <laughs> I mean, you know, it didn't matter as a kid what her name was. Well, or it doesn't her. matter because she's a plot device. That's true. That is and true. Worse than that, too. But it's fine. I, I don't think that I could have given anybody's character names except for maybe Milo yeah. as a kid. So um, I I do want to point out a comparison between this movie and Frozen 2 and Frozen and uh, a lot of other more recent Disney movies um, like uh, Moana, which is that in this movie they do a lot of different stuff than the typical Disney princess storyline. However... Unlike Moana and Frozen and Frozen 2, they didn't, as far as I can tell, even try to have anybody go and research mm -hmm. all of the complex cultural things that they were going to be dealing with. Whereas they had a lot of, whereas whether or not, whether or not, uh, whether or not they did it well is a different issue that I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm prepared or qualified to really break down. But, at least they tried. Yeah. To at least they tried. They got people to consult who, uh, who supposedly knew a lot, both academically and like from personally existing within the culture, to to consult on the cultural things that they are going to be portraying mm -hmm. in Moana and Frozen and Frozen Two, and they didn't do that here, and yet they have a scene where, uh, where they're driving through into a into Atlantis in the car, and Milo's like, yeah, if you throw in a dash of Sumerian and steal the, steal the grammar from, uh, steal the grammar from, uh, Armenian or something, like, he just throws out a bunch of, uh, throws out a bunch of languages. He's Boy, like, isn't yeah, that, that so then... colonialist, though? <laughs> you just steal yeah. some Sumerian and just put a dash <laughs> of Armenian in there, you're good to go. If we just appropriate they, a little bit. But they clearly didn't have, like, any any real research as as to like what the what the cultures they were going to be like stealing stuff from actually are about and then they make the atlanteans like when when you first see them at the beginning of the movie they look like uh they look like you know semi they look like some kind of cross between uh stereotypical greek ancient greece and like and like a kind of like a native american or yeah. pacific islander kind of it's like the it's like a bland it's like what if tribal tattoos with greek building style yeah and they they just really didn't know what they were what where they were going with that and it's kind of disappointing Disney's kind of learning some lessons as they go along. Yeah, between that well, and Pocahontas, I think they learn a lot. And and think about this too in in the way that we look at at kind of Disney's path of progression on this, right? Compare this movie and its weird like aggregation of like cultural theft, right? And compare that to a film like Black Panther, right? Right. Which if you take some time to study like where the different art and architecture in Black Panther come from they all come from different African cultures, right? Like so much of that movie feels African, not because it's ripping off African culture, but because it is pulling from African culture. And there was this idea that, that Wakanda in the film would have people from all different parts of the African continent, right? And so you get this film. We, I, in my African studies class last semester, we talked, I had a whole assignment based off of it. It was terrible. But it was kind of cool to see all of these different places that that film works in this space without necessarily aggressively ripping or appropriating from these other cultures, right? Um, and that was helped by the case that it was an African-American director who directed that film, right? Yes. Um, which is another big another big thing here, right? And I think to give this film not, not necessarily credit, but the benefit of ignorance, I guess, I don't necessarily think that... I think that this is less, like of an offensive piece of like appropriative fiction 
right? Or even colonialist fiction. I don't think it's like offensive because it's about a, a fictional society in a lot of ways, right? Mm-hmm. Somebody could totally disagree with me on that take, but and I would be open to hear it. But I I think that that's maybe where this film makes its telling missteps and where it becomes a valuable piece for a, a critical analysis, right? And looking in and saying like, okay, like in what way do the attitudes of culture and imperialism still bleed in to this film that is not necessarily explicitly colonialist propaganda, right? Right. Um, to circle back to the question a little bit, um, what would we change in this movie? I have uh, one comical suggestion, uh, aside from just destroy all the ships in the ocean on their way <laughs> in, um, and uh, two, two real suggestions. Um, my semi-comical suggestion is that we, this movie would be greatly, greatly improved if, um, they just don't get to Atlantis, right? And I implied that with, like, destroy the ships, right? But, like, what if they just didn't get there and they were like, well, I guess we're turning around. Like, we're not going to make it to Atlantis, right? Um, I think that this movie would be a really interesting thing if it was about more, like, the psychotic breakdown because they do this implication with like the way that the tensions of the group start to strain especially Rourke really starts to dislike Milo right as this whole thing moves along um I don't know I the only thing way that they could have possibly capitalized on that tension more was that at Rourke's desk death he had said the horror the horror the horror um which was a really good uh heart of darkness joke but I guess (laughs) I haven't read Heart of Darkness, I'm sorry. That's probably for the best, it's fine. That That is colonialist propaganda. Um, but yeah, what I was going to say is, I think that they, if they, had they explored like the tensions of this group, and like what happens if they actually don't make it to Atlantis, like if they never mm-hmm. actually get there, and the group just kind of collapses in on itself, and who makes it back, and that kind of thing. But of course that's not the point. So I would say my other semi-comical suggestion is what if Leonard Nimoy's character was more of an actor in this film? Right? Mm, yeah, like, he plays the Atlantean he, king. He plays the Atlantean king, which is the only place where they were like, hey, what if we just had a cameo here, right? Which I kind of get. Also, Leonard Nimoy's funny. voice is fantastic in this kind of work. But, but it, think about what if his character had been more of an independent actor, right? Like, these dudes roll in, and he knows they were trouble when they walked in, right? And right. instead instead of saying, like, hey, you're out of here right now, he's like, yeah, you can stay the night, which is weird, because they don't, like, sleep anywhere. They just, like, raid the place that night. <laughs> um, like, instead of immediately, like, raising whatever semblance of an army he can and, like, making this more of a discursive thing, he's like, okay, you can stay the night. I'm tired, so I'm going to go to bed, um, but I'll leave a light on for you. I'm Tom Bodette, right? Um, and it's just like this weird, I don't know. So I think the film could be greatly improved if like there was tension here because he knows that there's a problem and he just doesn't do anything about it, right? Yeah. Don't really know how he knows that there's a problem, but it's fine. He knows because he's been alive for 8,800 years. Um, plus however many years it took him to get old before that. Um, and then I think this film would also be greatly improved if it got rid of some of its weird male gaze stuff. Yes. Like, there are two distinct scenes. Like, first when Milo comes home and Helga's, like, in his apartment. They literally play, like, the most, like... I'm, I I get... I, I could maybe... I don't know. I could give it a little credit by saying it kind of felt like they were ripping on this noir idea of, like, the smoky female when you walk into the detective's office, right? But I honestly felt kind of unironic to me and not like they were ripping on that, so... Yeah, that was weird. And then the second that, like, this is a a film where, like, Kida, the character, runs around wearing, like, like, midriff exposed, like, wearing, like, what she wants the entire film. And then the second she takes off of her cloak, it becomes this weird male gaze thing, right? Where instead of saying, like, I'm a pretty good swimmer, he says, I'm pretty girl, right? 
like like the most oh just the most excruciating like weird male gaze thing that i think i've ever seen in an animated film like it's just it has weird stuff like that that i would just absolutely cut because it's bizarre or even the the sequence at the end where or where audrey randomly kisses him and then says two for flinching like like she didn't have to kiss him and hey i've known a lot of people most people don't kiss people randomly especially not people that they're like people that they're not like interested in so like i mean except for in those cultures where like kissing as a greeting is like a normal thing but other than that yeah like like people don't like celebrate i don't know it felt weird to me and it felt like like every female character at one point or another in this film is played for like some kind of like male gaze thing even like the older lady who runs the intercom mentions that she get she sleeps fully nude <laughs> <laughs> and even that becomes kind of like a thing where they're like, oh, well, you want to cover your eyes because she also sleepwalks. And it's like, why does like, why is why are female bodies such an interesting part? Like, why are they so involved in this hour and a half Disney film? Right. It was bizarre to me. I didn't understand that. Logan, anyway, I would like to mention you covered every single female character with lines in this movie. Yes, I did. Because yeah. unlike the film itself, I paid attention to them. Um, <laughs> the, if I can add something, um, this what you're talking about, like they they could have they could have done some things that would have made it not quite as like that would have made some of those things not quite as strange, like Audrey uh, giving Milo a kiss on the cheek. Had they done had they done any any um like fleshing out of the of the relationships that were like the friendships that were building among characters um aside from that one scene in which they talk about like in which they talk about everybody's backstories and you find out the uh and you find out the calm operator sleeps in the nude and sleepwalk sleepwalks mm-hmm. like had they done any of that aside from just that one scene maybe they could have uh Maybe they could have, like, worked in some personalities to the characters so that whatever actions they gave them wouldn't feel like anything other than random actions. But pretty yeah. much pretty much all of the all of the actions of the different female characters did feel pretty random. Um, you have Helga who uh, you have Helga who immediately, as soon as she realizes she's uh, being betrayed by the, uh, being betrayed by, uh, Rourke, um, just kind of, like, loses it on him, and then, uh, like, loses it on him, and then gets thrown overboard anyway. Yeah, her dying line of, you promised me a percentage. Yeah, like, we, we don't really, we don't really have any context for who she is or what her personality is, because the film didn't take any time yeah well and and this is like maybe this film's biggest pitfall right (laughs) is that it's 90 minutes long right like when we when we examine films of its ilk right when we look at something like avatar avatar falls into many of these same pitfalls in two and a half three hours right like like these are hard things to sidestep around and and you know as 2001 like air quotes woke literature right like that's what this is this is trying to be like relatively anti-colonialist right like this is trying to say something but it's way too short to effectively treat that subject matter right yeah Uh, at least with the scope that it takes on and so it ends up falling into a lot of really troubling pitfalls along the way i many but not all of which we have addressed yeah um I guess I'll cover at this point, though, what I would change about it to make it less problematic. Um, the first thing that I would do is I would change the problem that the Atlanteans find themselves in. I wouldn't make it the decay and collapse of their society. I would make them literally stuck somehow. Uh, what, what about the they can't leave and they're starving? That was like a plot point in this film. And they just were like, but we also can't read. If only we could read, we'd be able to get ourselves some food. The practical right. hunter-gatherer skill. Reading. Right. So, like, if it was something like that, like, there was a physical barrier between them and the, the Atlanteans, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or this one is one that I thought of that I thought would be kind of fun. This is a show that, like, already deals with some weird magic stuff. 
you got time during the second and third act of the film to set up like a weird time travel plot where they're stuck in basically a loop that they cannot get out of. And it just keeps resetting and they're just doomed to rewatch the collapse of their civilization over and over again as inert actors um, until new elements are introduced. I guess I could see that. It would be a vastly different story. Yes, it would be. But maybe a less problematic one, yeah. Right? And so if you say, like, no, literally, magically, they're just, like, stuck in this loop. Um, And yeah, it is related to the sins of the king. I thought you said the Sims. And I was like, (laughs) all right. (laughs) Like, the hit video game, the Sims. You said the sins of the king, but I thought you said the Sims. And I was like, whoa. All right, sorry, I totally cut you off, but that really shook me. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, like, you, you just completely change what the circumstances of the problem are, and then you make the solution different. It's not necessarily so much that, you know, oh, my, look how smart Milo is. It's literally you guys were just able to change anything about the scenario um, and have that be how the second act ends, um, being like, this... okay, we get you oh, sorry, out of the time travel paradox, and then... The third act is, I think you can actually keep the third act basically the same, where, like, Rourke tries to take precious treasures from the Atlanteans, and the crew splits in half, and half of the crew works with the Atlanteans to fight Rourke, and the other half goes with Rourke to take the treasure. And then you basically still get to keep this same story, but you take away a lot of the problematic elements. What if this movie was just Arrival? is like pretty close to what you suggested, which I think is really cool, right? Yeah, um, a rival school movie. Because like this idea of like, hey, what if we made the plot not about colonialism, right? right. Like what if it was about anything else? I, I think there are two other like really troubling colonialist things in here that I noticed that I did want to highlight. Um, the first is that the first time we see Atlanteans in this movie, they are sneaking around and robbing the camp of the white people. <laughs> Like, yeah, that's a problematic image to put on native people. And it's not that they're robbing them of, like, food because their civilization is starving and dying. It doesn't matter what they're robbing them of. Right. right? But, like, I mean, that's never addressed like that. It just is a thing that is just taken as the course of the film. And then the other thing that I thought was really, really interesting is, like, what... The, the fate of these characters in this movie, right? What happens to them? The bad ones die, and the good ones become rich. rich, right? So what was the bad guy trying to do? Well, he was trying to take Atlantean treasures. But if we'd only colonized them nicely, they probably just would have given to that, given us them, right? Like, right? And the answer is, of course, no. That's, no. That's terrible, right? Like, and so there's more, I think, I I don't know. I don't even know that like, even our best attempts at fixing this really fix its problems, right? Like, this idea that every character, every colonizing force in this gets a happy ending as long as they were nice colonists, right? Starts to really great, even in the more generous versions of this that we created, right? Anyway, I don't know. It, it kind of bugs me. I've been ranting, and I apologize for that, but... Well, and we've spent about three quarters of our pod time on basically these questions um so i'm going to skip a few of the questions that i have planned although uh, our our listeners may be interested in them one of the questions that i have is the movie is set in the year 1914 why do you think this choice was made um and then also i talk about how most disney films uh follow the formula of the coming of age slash romance story and atlantis is just not that can i argue um, here actually because i disagree with that take Okay. Um, You're going to say Milo is a Disney princess? No. I'm, I'm, <laughs> Sorry, I'm, that would have been funny. <laughs> that would have been very funny. No, but, but like, Cusco is. Can, yes. yes, yes. Can we talk for a second about how in any meaningful way this film is different from Sleeping Beauty? Like, there's huh. literally a sequence in this movie where Milo gets on a robot fish and is like, let's go save the princess. His words, not mine. Like... And, and, you know, Sleeping Beauty is a lot older, and it's a lot more simple, and it's based in, like, meaningful European folklore, right? And so it kind of gets 
a little bit more structure and a little bit more uh, basis from that. Whereas this is just kind of like a rip of that existing stuff. This is like definitely a coming of age slash romance story. Not necessarily through the eyes of a princess, but I think it follows the Disney formula pretty much footstep by footstep. Like, it somehow manages to squeeze a powerful colonialist narrative, and not using that as a compliment, into a the formula of Disney, right? Like, like this is a, a movie where instead of sleeping her, he's not, like, helping her from a physical physical sleep he's helping her from the mental sleep that atlantis has had imposed upon it by the poor decision that the tribal elder or whatever made right anyway sorry i like i'm really bagging on this movie but i just watched it so my takes are coming out really hot off the press and i feel like i'm just subjecting you all to it and now you're basically stepping on the critical equivalent of a george foreman grill um (laughs) but but that's that's how I feel. I anyway, I've given my take. I, I, we really don't have time to unpack it. I don't think. But but yeah, I, I actually do think that it does. Uh, to answer your sub question here that you put, how is it still trapped by it? It's basically still a Disney princess movie. <laughs> anyway, sorry, I talked too much again. But but that's how I feel. All right. Well, I do want to focus on the last question because that's about all we've got time for. Um, this film doesn't have an antagonist until the end. Like, there are antagonistic forces, but there's not a bad guy until the final act of the movie when we learn that Rourke is, like, just the worst in Milo's eyes. Um, this is unusual, especially for, you know, a Disney film, right? You could point to almost any pre-Atlantis Disney film and say, that's the bad guy. Like, I have a game sitting at home called Villainous, which is a Disney game where you play different Disney villains, and I have 12 of them. Like, that's... There's a huge canon of Disney villains that are just famous and recognizable, and even looking at that game, I go, wow, they're missing a lot of characters. So it's weird for a Disney film not to have a villain um, until the end. But some later Disney films, such as Frozen, have tried to emulate this. And the the villain in Frozen is met with a lot of criticism a lot of the time. Um, so the question I have here is, do you think that not having an antagonist until the end works in Atlantis? And if so, why? Or if not, why, I guess. Can I jump in first? Um, yeah, go, I, go for it. Well, I, I think... I think to a certain degree it works. I think it could have worked better. Um, if I can, if I can compare this to Titan AE again, um, the the parallel for uh, the parallel for Rourke in Titan AE is uh, Captain Corso, mm-hmm. um, and he got a lot more character development, and he was kind of a sympathetic character. He took. Uh, he took uh, Kale under his under his wing, um, and had known him as a child and wanted to wanted to kind of take care of him, even though his other goals were less than were less than honorable. He wanted to kind of honor Kale's father's memory, um, and they all of these things. Uh, we we got to know uh, we got to know Corso in Titan A.E. Um, but. With uh, with Rourke, they kind of they kind of foreshadow that things are going to go sour when they get to Atlantis through a lot of the through a lot of the things like the the rest of the group's complete disregard for the life of for the lives of their other like mercenary crew members and uh, and things like that. But we didn't really uh, we didn't really get to know uh, our betrayer very well I and I think uh, Frozen kind of has the same problem with Hans where they where they foreshadow what's going to happen but we don't really get to know Hans in a way that makes the that makes the betrayal have the the same kind of impact that Corso's betrayal has that's um 
that's that's the main thing I think is just it could have been done better. Um, but I I think it's I think as far as the as far as the plotting goes, it works. But I I don't think they character developed it to a point where you really care a whole lot mm. that it's happening. That's the main problem for me. Logan, what about you? Um, yeah, I, hmm, I don't know. It's a tough question. I think maybe where this film kind of like has a bit of more challenge for me compared to a film like Frozen, right? Frozen is just like, if you know much about like the development of that film, Frozen is just like a pointedly broken film, which is to say that it was based on the Snow Queen mythos and... Elsa was pointedly supposed to be the bad guy, but then let it go was just too catchy, <laughs> right? Is essentially what <laughs> happened to that movie. Um, and so Elsa couldn't, like, there's a deleted scene where she just sweeps soldiers off of a cliff. Like, she was pointedly supposed to be the antagonist of that film. Uh, but then she was just too likable, right? And so, you know, it really doesn't work to have her be the bad guy. And so then they just kind of wrote in a bad guy. And so it, it has kind of a troubled development. So I think it's less Frozen is trying to emulate a, frankly, more realistic style where just some dude gaslights everybody. Um, and I think it's more that it just kind of has a troubled development. This film, I, I agree with Greg that the biggest problem that this has is that you don't know anything about... Like, we spoke for a minute about like the female characters not really having anything in this um but rourke's whole thing basically is like i don't like milo and i spit on his grandfather's legacy right which is very funny because um this is a movie pointedly about uh white legacy right like if you were to talk about like okay what is this okay he's picking up his grandfather's torch he's he's following he's finishing the quest line he's carrying the legacy forward and it is pointedly not a film about native legacy how do i know that because it's been 8800 years and all of the native people are literally the same people one of them is an actual teenager who justifies her father despite knowing him for 8800 years right this is not a film about native legacy contrasted with it very explicitly being a film about about white legacy right and so i think that Part of the problem is that the actual antagonism between Rourke, aside from him just kind of being a bad guy, between Rourke and Milo is this whole, like, I, I think about the scene where he, he's like, oh, yeah, I forgot. I have to do one final disrespect before I carry the princess off, and that's to punch Milo in the face and step on his picture of his grandfather, but not break his glasses, which would have definitely solved the problem that he fixed at the end of that film right like the atlanteans can only fight back if they can read and the only person who can read atlantean needs glasses to do it well correct right like like instead of instead of like actually doing something effectual he steps on a picture because rourke's whole thing you know yeah we can argue like his bad side is that he um he wants to kill people and that he doesn't care and he's a profit motivated guy and that's his you know part of his problem but really if we really like look at this through the lens of milo's character we start to see that actually the only real problem with rourke is that where everybody else understood the goals and vision of thatch's grandfather thaddeus thatch is that his name yeah yeah when everybody understood the love he had for atlantis and emulated that everything was fine but when Rourke spat on the legacy, that was the problem, right? And so I, I mean, we even get this like sense as the tensions begin to mount that he never really liked Thaddeus and that he definitely doesn't like Milo. I didn't get and might have oh. killed oh. Thaddeus. Sorry, we're we're guest starring Siri on this one. That was my bad. Um, but yeah, we get this idea that, that his real sin is in disrespecting the name, right? He should have remembered the name. And it, and I think that that is maybe where it falls short, uh, just coming at it from a different perspective. Well, I'll give my take on it real quick, and then we better wrap this thing up. Uh, but I think that uh, it does work as an antagonist in the most literal sense of the word, meaning that the protagonist has an explicit goal, and the antagonist is whatever force is standing in the way of that. Um, and Milo's goal is to 
protect the Atlanteans and help them to thrive as a society, and Rourke is, like, explicitly not gonna let that happen. And so he is an antagonist, and it's obvious that their goals are going to clash if it ever comes down to that. Like, this isn't a surprise to anyone when it does go down, um, if you look at it through that lens. But I think the criticisms that you all leveled are still completely valid that, yeah, no, like, we don't know enough about Rourke, and his only goal seems to just, like, hate on Milo's granddad. Like, that's it. <laughs> Make yeah. money and hate grandpas. <laughs> Make money, hate grandpas. <laughs> um, yeah, be- well, he is, you could say, the true antagonist to Macklemore's thrift shop, because not only would he pop tags with $20 in his pocket, he needs that Gucci, but he also wouldn't wear your granddad's clothes. <laughs> it's just full disrespect, the polar opposite of that song. Yep. Um, but I, I think it works. Uh, quick takes, though. Did you guys like it? Would you watch it again? Did I like it? Not for not when I watched it critically. Would I would I watch it again? Probably because when I'm not thinking about it critically, it is kind of a fun show. Lots of explosions and cool uh, ancient tech kinds of stuff. So yeah, and some fun dialogue, cool animation style, definitely for sure. Yeah. Um, Logan. Yeah, I. Oh, do I like this movie? Uh, so I saw this movie in theaters, and I loved it then, and I think I rewatched half of it in high school, and then I just sat down for it for the second and a half time this time. And um, despite my vocal criticism, yeah, I like this movie a lot. Um, a writer at Kotaku named Heather Alexandra said that criticism is an act of love, and it for sure is in this case for me. Um, this is a movie that means a lot to me and, and like Greg said, is quite the spectacle, honestly, which I think is part of its biggest problem and, and maybe where it it focuses more on that than it maybe should have had should have focused on other elements. But I think it's also a super valuable from the critical side, a super value valuable um, artifact of like what it means to be like white and woke, <laughs> especially in the twenty first century. Um, and it, I think it gives us, it, it serves as a cautionary tale about maybe some of the things that we can fall short on. And it's a super fun watch. So yeah, despite its problems, I like this and I would probably watch it again. I got to teach my kids about imperialism somehow, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway, yeah, I like it. I like it. Cool. Well, uh, do you want to go ahead and take us out? Sure. Uh, thanks for sticking around while we talked about something that, uh, you know, depending on where you're from and who you are and, and how post-colonial you are, might have been a difficult watch for you at times. Um, but we think I think we got really good discussion out of it, so I, I appreciate all the listeners who have been with us to this point, and not just with us to this point in the podcast, but this with us to this point in the show. Anybody who's been listening through all of our quarantine stuff and, and as we've tried to get things figured out and, and, and work through through different things and had some shaky recording schedules and some difficulties. Uh, we really appreciate all of your support. Uh, next time we're going to be talking about actually another Disney movie, which is uh, kind of unlike us to do something those that closely back to back. But Disney has just released uh, Artemis Fowl directly to Disney Plus instead of doing a theatrical release. Um, Nathaniel and Greg, I think both of you have read that. Um, I, I have, have yeah, I have. Yeah, yeah, okay, they've both read it. I if Their voices are cut out. I don't know if they are at this point. I have not read it, so it will be kind of like a fun thing. And and I will say this, I have not read Artemis Fowl, but that is not for lack of trying. I've started that book six times. And so um, it should be interesting to, to watch it and go through. I honestly don't know what to expect because I've never gotten very far into that book. So it uh, should be a lot of fun. So if you have Disney+, Plus, you can watch that, and that is right now the only way to watch that. So um, I'm pretty sure there's a free trial if you need it, um, if you didn't already burn it for this episode. Uh, yeah, so if you have liked what you've heard so far on Peep This Noise, please like and subscribe if your podcast platform allows you to do that. Uh, but more importantly, if you really like this show, we would appreciate if you would tell your friends who might enjoy listening. Um, we try to uh, kind of get a broad variety of, of ideas and things introduced into the show, uh, try to shake up the formula of like, three white dudes and we have a podcast where we talk about things we watch um we're really trying to kind of trying to break through that um and on a similar note we would love to hear what you think of the show even if 
that's negative. Try not to be too scathing, please, but we can take it if you are. You can contact us at Peep This Noise on Twitter, or you can find us at mail at peepthisnoise.com is the email for that. I'd like to give a special thank you to Katie Davidson and the band Key Losers for allowing us to use the song Don't Know Why. That song comes from the album California Light, and it's our show's theme song. So you heard it at the top, and you're going to hear it again. Uh, I love that song. It was kind of a really, really cool day for me when uh, Katie emailed me back and said that we could uh, use that song. Uh, so really appreciate them and, and feeling hashtag blessed, as the kids say. We wish they wouldn't, but there's nothing we can do to stop at that point. Well, thanks again for listening to Peep This Noise. And remember, like the podcast hashtag that I just used, hashtag blessed, everybody likes bad things. Open up your mind.